Somehow, Ken, I think you may have lost or missed your calling. Yeah. <laughs> and we're going to switch places. We're going to put Dr. Soul as class pastor. <laughs> well, it's good to be back. I had a great time in Washington, D.C., and some of you know uh, why Lynn and I uh, went to Washington, D.C., we actually traveled there to attend the Pledge of Allegiance case at the Supreme Court. And uh, Aaron, our oldest son, uh, works at the Supreme Court. He's a law clerk for Chief Justice Rehnquist, so he was able to get us uh, guest tickets. And uh, we got to hear the case argued, and it was very interesting. The man who was bringing the case, Michael Newdow, is an atheist, and he was bringing the case and uh, the, he was what we call the prosecutor, and those that were the defenders were the Elk Grove School District, along with his wife and daughter, because every day his daughter would go to school and put her hand over her heart and pledge her allegiance to the United States uh, as one nation under God. And he said, every time she does that, the state forces my daughter to say, my father is wrong in all of his beliefs. And that is very divisive, and we need to take that phrase under God out of the Pledge of Allegiance. So my uh, feeling as the uh, argument went on is that the justices really did not show him uh, too much encouragement. They asked very hard questions. You know, we have two Jewish uh, associate justices, and uh, even uh, they were very... Uh, I wouldn't say antagonistic, but they asked very tough questions of Michael Newdow. And uh, he, at first, was very flustered. And then he sort of regained his composure. He's, he's somewhat of a, um, I wouldn't say a belligerent person, but a person who is very uh, self-assured. And uh, he is a medical doctor and an attorney. So he's very well educated. And at one point, <clears throat> he said that this, praise under God is causing divisions in the country. And Chief Justice Rehnquist said, well, when the phrase under God was put in the pledge in 19, I believe it was, was it 54 or 64, uh, <clears throat> how many congressmen voted against it? And New Dow said, none. And Rehnquist said, well, it doesn't seem to be very divisive at all, then does it? And New Dow said, that's because no atheist could ever run for Congress and win a seat. And he had about 12 or 14 visitors sitting in a certain section of the Supreme Court, and they clapped. And at that point, Rehnquist knocked that gavel, and you could have heard a pin drop. He said, I will clear this chamber if there is another peep out of anybody. And at that point, the Secret Service men, who had their little earphones and bulges in the back of their coats, they went, uh, took one step forward, and I was afraid to reach in my pocket and pull out... <laughs> pull out my pen to take notes. <laughs> but it was a very interesting uh, case. Uh, you know, they have these big marble columns, which are about twice as wide as these columns that we have here, maybe 8 or 10, 12 feet around, and uh, they're flocked on every side of the court. It's a beautiful building. And one of the things that uh, also, by the way, we did get to go and meet the the Chief Justice privately, Aaron took us into his office, and he sat us down on the sofa where John Quincy Adams, the sixth president of the United States, died. <coughs> and uh, 
It just happens that my birthday is on the birthday of John Quincy Adams, which is interesting. And uh, he immediately uh, was very at ease, and he said, why do you have two T's on the end of your name? And uh, he wanted to know about that, and we talked about all kinds of things. It was a, it was a great time, a lot of fun. We got a couple pictures with him. And uh, so one of the other things that we did, and I don't want to take too much time, but one of the other things that we did during the visit was we attended Capitol Hill Baptist Church. Uh, on a Tuesday, and the pastor showed us around, gave us about a two-hour tour. We sat down, talked to the staff, and uh, then he took us up on the roof of the church. <clears throat> we went outside and on the roof. I don't know how many of you ever watch West Wing. Anybody here ever watch West Wing? <clears throat> you know, I'm sort of addicted to it because, you know, my one son's in Washington. Uh, but anyway, if you saw the episode about three or four weeks ago, one of the main characters is a guy by the name of Josh Lyman. And the, uh, he meets a scientist who takes him out to Rock Creek Park and sets up a telescope. And he looks through the telescope and he sees the stars like he's never seen them before. And he decides to tell the president to give money for uh, scientific research because of this experiment. And then that episode of West Wing ends with Josh Lyman on the roof of a building in Washington, D.C. and looks up at the stars and then his gaze comes down and he looks at the dome of the Capitol and he realizes what an awesome experience he's having in his life during this period of time. That scene was shot on the roof of uh, Capitol Hill Baptist Church. They gave them $2,000 to shoot the scene right there. <laughs> so anyway, it's good to be back. I, uh, I watched the video from last week. Dr. Johnson did such an excellent job and, uh, I noticed he got a, he got applause when he said he joined the class. So that was good. And, uh, he's away this week in Colorado trying to raise some money for the college. So remember to pray for him. Okay, let's take our Bibles and open up to Daniel chapter 11, okay? Daniel chapter 11. We're going to deal with the Antichrist, and that's going to be the subject of our discussion, the Antichrist. Now, when we think of the term Antichrist, and we look at the first part of the word anti, we realize that it can mean against. And the Antichrist is surely one who is against Christ. The word anti also can mean instead of. And we know that the Antichrist is one who presents himself as the Messiah, tries to deceive the Jewish people, proclaims himself to be God, and as a result, many flock to him and worship him as the coming Messiah. And chapter 11 deals, at least a portion of chapter 11, deals with the Antichrist. Now, we're actually going to start our study in verse 36. Now, that means I'm going to skip verses 1 through 35, and I'm going to do that for two reasons. Number one, verses 1 through 35 are very technical. It's a very technical passage. And it's very complicated, and I believe it would be very difficult to handle in this format without 
an overhead projector, marking mark boards, all those kinds of things, charts. And so I think I'm going to just start at verse 36. And also, I believe I can accomplish uh, what I intend regarding the first 35 verses by the handout that you have on your table. And you'll notice that there is a handout that deals with verses 1 through 35, and we should have one for every couple and for every individual. And if you'll just take that for a second, I'll show you how to use that handout, which goes into some depth. Now, if you look at verse 1 of Daniel 11, it says this. Also in the first year, Darius the Mede, who was the king at that time, this is Michael the archangel speaks, I, even I, stood up to confirm and strengthen him, and now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings will arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be richer than them all by his strength through his riches. He shall stir up all against the realm of Greece. And if you look on your chart, you see that that king is King Xerxes, or Artaxerxes, who lived from 486 to 465 B.C. Then you look at verse 3, it says, Then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion, and do according to his will. And if you look on the handout, you see that that's Alexander the Great, and I give you the dates that he ruled. And then verse 4, And when he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken up and divided toward the four winds of heaven and I show you that there are four generals on the handout who take over the kingdom of Greece and then skip down to verse 6 for example I'll just show you one more example and at the end of some years they shall join forces there's going to be two kings who are going to join forces for the daughter of the king of the south shall go to the king of the north to make an agreement and the rest of the verse tells more about this daughter and if you look on the handout verse 6 says that there's an alliance through a marriage which takes place in 250 BC Ptolemy II gives his daughter Bernice to Antiochus II who divorces his wife to marry this girl and a political alliance is formed now you can see how this can really get very complicated and so this will cover verses 1 through 35 and then I thought what we would do is we pick up with the last great king that's mentioned in verse 36. Now what happens in verse 36, we actually have a jump across the centuries. Verses 1 through 35 deal with events that are going to happen in the near future as far as Daniel's concerned. There's going to be the Grecian Empire, there's going to be the Roman Empire, you know, there's going to be Antiochus, Epiphanes, all these things that we've talked about in the past. And then in verse 36, there is a leap across the centuries and we're introduced to the ultimate world ruler, the end time ruler known as the Antichrist. So let's pick up at verse 36. And here's what it says. Then the king, that's the Antichrist, he is simply called the king in this passage, shall do according to his own will. Now what we're going to get here is we're going to get a description of the Antichrist. First of all, you see that he is a person in authority. 
He is a king, and notice what it says. He will do according to his own will. He's not concerned what others think. He does what he wants to do, and no one can stop him. So we see his power, and we see his authority. And then look look at what we see next. We see the pride of the king. He shall exalt himself, in verse 36, and magnify himself above every god. So we see his authority, and now we see his arrogance. He thinks more of himself than he ought, and he exalts himself above all the gods. Now, we know from the book of Revelation that when the great tribulation occurs, the Antichrist is going to establish a treaty with the nation of Israel, and he's going to become their protector. But at the three-and-a-half-year mark, he's going to proclaim himself to be higher than any god, and he's going to turn against the Jewish people. And so here we see his arrogance. Now, keep moving in verse 36. It says, not only that, he shall speak blasphemies against the God of gods. Now we see his antagonism. His antagonism against the one true and living God. He not only exalts himself above all gods, but he is antagonistic against the one true and living God by shouting blasphemies against the true and living God. And then look what it says in verse 36. And he shall prosper. Now here we see his success. And we see his accomplishments. He can do whatever he wants to do. Whatever he has in mind, he is able to accomplish. But I want you to notice that his success is limited because it says he shall prosper. Now look at this next word. Till, till the wrath has been accomplished for what has been determined shall be done. So we see that he's going to be very successful. He's going to persecute Jewish people. He's going to gain control of the world. And all this is going to happen until God's wrath falls. Now notice it says that this is determined. You see that? This is all in God's predetermined plan. God has a prophetic calendar. We don't know what the dates are. He's chosen not to reveal the dates. But part of that plan is that God is going to allow an Antichrist to rise up and take over the world. Last week, Dr. Johnson talked about the devil being God's devil. Well, I want you to know the Antichrist is God's Antichrist. God's in control. The Antichrist thinks he's in control. Just like Nebuchadnezzar thought he was in control, but who was in control? That's right, it was God. And guess what? The last great king thinks he's in control, but guess who's in control? And one day he'll find out when the wrath of God falls and there will be a time of judgment then his accomplishments will come to an end now not only that not only do we see his authority not only do we see his arrogance not only do we see his antagonism not only do we see his accomplishments but look at verse 37 we see his apostasy he shall regard 
That means he will not give honor or respect. He shall neither regard the God of his fathers. Now I call this his apostasy because I think this identifies the Antichrist as Jewish. And I believe the Antichrist is actually born a Jew and he apostatizes and he turns against the one true and living God. Now there are a lot of people who believe that the Antichrist is a Gentile. In fact, I would say the majority of the books that you read and the majority of the commentaries you read will say that the Antichrist is a Gentile and one of the reasonings is because the Antichrist is going to come out of what we believe is the revived Roman Empire. But guess what? You can be Jewish and live in the revived Roman Empire. Can't you? I think you can. And why would, would any Jew accept the Antichrist as the Messiah if he were Gentile? That doesn't even make sense. In order for him to deceive the Jewish people into thinking he's the Messiah, he'd have to be Jewish. And then that phrase, neither shall he regard the God of his fathers. Now, some translations use the word God's plural, but don't let that fool you. The phrase, God of his fathers, is a Jewish phrase that means the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob, that's called the God of the fathers. So he doesn't have any respect for the God of his fathers, so I believe that he is a child of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, I could be wrong, I wouldn't bet my paycheck this week on that, okay? But I think that's correct. But watch this. We also see that he's antagonistic because Look what this says. He shall neither regard the God of his fathers. Now look at this next phrase. Very interesting phrase. Neither shall he regard the desire of women. Now what in the world does that mean? Neither shall he regard the desire of women. Some people say that means he's homosexual. No, it doesn't say he has no regard. It doesn't say uh, desire for women. Not like that he doesn't have a desire for women. It's not that at all. The desire of women. What does that mean, the desire of women? Does anybody have any uh, things in your Bibles that say anything about that? Probably no footnotes. Huh? What in the world is the desire of women? Huh? Doesn't discriminate? No, that's not it. <laughs> the, yes, desire of women means to give birth. And the desire of, which could mean, if we took it in, in today's terms, he could be a person who couldn't care about whether a baby is born or not. Could be that. Could be a mass murder. Probably not that. Probably what it means is that he has no regard for the Messiah because the desire of every Jewish woman, woman was to give birth to the Messiah. Now, I found that out when I was growing up in a very Jewish neighborhood in Baltimore, Maryland. Now, the Jews don't believe the Messiah has come yet, do they? Only Christians believe that. And I grew up in a neighborhood that was made up of Orthodox and Hasidic Jews. And the desire of every girl when she got married was possibly that her child would be a male and her child would be the Messiah that would deliver the Jewish people. And this goes right back to Genesis 3.15, that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And the desire of the woman, of every Jewish woman, was that she would give birth to the Messiah. 
That's why the angel, Gabriel, says to Mary, Blessed art thou, what? Among women. You've been chosen. The desire of women has come to you. So what this means is that the Antichrist not only gives no regard to the God of his fathers, that's God, he also has no regard for the Messiah. He rejects the Father and he rejects the Son. Now I want to put, have you put your finger in this section and I want you to turn over in your Bibles to 1 John, way in the back of your New Testament. 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. He rejects the Father and he rejects the Son, the Messiah. And when you get to 1 John chapter 2, go down to verse 22. 1 John 2, 22. Look what it says. Who is a liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Look at this phrase. He is Antichrist who denies, one, the Father and two, the Son. Now that's just what Daniel's talking about. He has no regard for the God of Israel, that's the Father, and he has no regard for the desire of women, that is the Messiah. He's the Antichrist. This is the characteristic of the Antichrist. So go back to Daniel 11, and look what it says at the end of verse 37. Nor, nor does he regard any God, for he shall exalt himself above them all. And that goes right back to the beginning of verse 36, just repeats that statement. And so this man is a very arrogant individual. But not only is he arrogant, he's very aggressive. Because look what it says in verse 38. But, this is a contrast, that's what he doesn't regard. That's what he doesn't consider important. Verse 38. But in their place, he shall honor a God of fortresses. His God will be war. That's what he respects. That's what he honors. Military might. Power. Remember Patton? You saw the movie Patton when he says just gives a little blasphemy and then he says I love war well the Antichrist will make Patton look like a tenderfoot this guy this guy will love this guy loves war he honors he honors war that's what the scripture says and then look what it says in verse 38 and a God which his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver and precious stones and pleasant things. He will spare no expense when it comes to war. He will fund his war machine with unlimited amounts of funds. And so here we see his aggressiveness. Now, I want to throw out an idea at this point. Uh, 
when I compare Daniel with Revelation, because when you really study the life of the Antichrist, you really should be studying Revelation 13, and we're just not going to have time to do that. But when you study the two, here's what I believe happened. I believe the Antichrist rejects God the Father and rejects God the Son, and he puts his trust in military might and his strength. And he actually may move in from Judaism over into the realm of like the New Age. Because it seems to be that there may be some sort of God behind the war. And there were some gods, false gods, that were actually gods of war. Like Thor, you know, and Mars, and things like that. So it may be that he has some sort, replaces the standard religions of the world with maybe his own religion and maybe he himself is the god of war but sort of a new age religion or a cult religion now that's what hitler did remember that hitler wanted to be hitler thought he was setting up a new world order he called it the third reich reich means millennium millennium number one from the time of Christ to the year 1000, millennium number two, year 1000, up to the time of Hitler. That's what he was thinking. And he would bring in the third millennium, and he would be the world ruler, and he built this whole system. He combined military might with an occult religion that he derived from North, North mythology. And he got all these... He, he, talked about the god Odin and all these kinds of things and it had an Aryan flavor that there was a you know the whites were supreme and maybe the Antichrist is going to do something because we do know that he has a false prophet who sort of pushes the religion and so there may be some sort of wedding between religion and state we're just not sure at this point but then look at verse 39 it says this and thus he shall act against the strongest fortresses. Now, look at this phrase. With a foreign god. See, that sort of lends the fact that maybe he, maybe he lines himself up, uh, self up with Satan himself. We just don't know. Which he shall acknowledge and advance its glory. So it seems like he brings military might and religion under one great umbrella. And he shall cause them to rule many and divide the land for gain. He's going to get a lot of followers and he's going to reward them and you know set up governors over different lands and many people will profit from his worldwide empire. So this is sort of a summary of what this Antichrist, this end time ruler is going to be like. Now, everything's going along fine. He's running the world. But there will be conflict. There will be battles the Antichrist must fight. And I want you to look at battle number one. Look at verse 40. Battle number one. Two major battles and then the final battle. The first battle. At the end of the time, the king of the south shall attack him. He's going to be attacked by someone called the king of the south. Now, in all of Daniel's prophecy, the king of the south 
is identified as Egypt. So we believe that Egypt and her allies, Libya, and if it happened today, it would be Muammar Gaddafi, who's saying, I don't have any mass weapons anymore, right? And Ethiopia and Morocco, where the terrorists come from that bomb the trains in Spain, there's going to be a, what's called a Southern Confederacy headed up by Egypt. Now, Egypt right now is on America's side, isn't it? But you know there are people that are trying to kill President Mubarak because they see him as a moderate. They don't see him as a an aggressive Muslim. And we don't know what's going to happen in the future, but evidently Egypt is going to become, is going to attack the Antichrist with her allies. <clears throat> so that's an attack from the south. Keep reading in verse 40. <clears throat> and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind with chariots, horsemen, and many ships. And so he's going to be attacked from the south, from Egypt and her allies. He's going to be attacked from the north. Now, up until 1991, everybody said the king of the north was the Soviet Union. How Lindsay popularized that. It actually started with M.R. Han, Dr. Han, back in the early 1900s. But how Lindsay popularized that, and John MacArthur in 1985 said, the king of the north is clearly the Soviet Union. Well, the Soviet Union has collapsed. Russia can't even feed its people or its military. And this shows you what happens when you try to interpret prophecy in light of events that are happening in our lifetime instead of going to Scripture and trying to interpret prophecy. And in Daniel's day, the king of the north was Syria. And it would be Syria and her allies. Now, the Syrian empire under Antiochus that Daniel sees in his prophecy controls a tremendous region in the north. It included not only what we call Syria today, but it included Iraq, Iran, Lebanon, South Turkey, and those regions. So there's going to be an attack on the Antichrist from the south, Egypt, Libya, attack from the north, Iraq, Iran, what do you notice about those countries? Yeah, it's the Muslim countries. It's going to be an all-out attack from the Arab nations, the Muslim nations, coming against the Antichrist, probably attacking him in the area of Jerusalem or somewhere in the Middle East, and they're going to come against him. <clears throat> now, that much we know. Now, watch this. And he, at the end of verse 40, shall enter the countries, and what will he do? Overwhelm them. He'll pass right through. And he's just going to literally destroy them, obliterate them. The smithereens. The Antichrist is going to put an end to the Islamic religion, even though we can't. So we should thank the Lord for the Antichrist. 
It's hard to believe, isn't it? But that's what we have. That's what we have. And look what else it says. It says this in verse 41. He shall enter into the glorious land, the beautiful land. That's Israel. And many countries shall be overthrown. But these shall escape from his hand. Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon. That is the country of Jordan. So somehow Jordan escapes. Now what do we know about Jordan? Those of you who are prophecy buffs know that when the Jews run for their lives, where do they run? Petra. Where's Petra? Jordan. So it's right there. Daniel says that. So somehow Jordan escapes. We don't understand it, how all that happened. But somehow they escape from all this. And he, verse 42, shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. And he shall have power over the treasures of gold and silver, and over all the precious things of Egypt, and also the Libyans and the Ethiopians, shall follow at his heels, which simply means that he's going to conquer them and they are going to become captive to him and serve him and he's going to get all the spoils of battle from all those countries. He's just going to take all their treasuries and he's going to get richer and richer and richer. <clears throat> now that's only battle number one. Okay. Now let's look at battle number two. Verse 44. But news from the east and from the north. I'm not talking about the king of the north, but news from the east and from the north shall trouble him. <clears throat> so there's going to be somehow a group from the east and some from the north, wherever they are, that's not identified, that are going to trouble him. Many people identify this great army from the east being an army from China. Now, we don't know if it's China or not, but we do believe there's going to be an oriental army that comes in and attacks the Antichrist and picks up troops probably from the northern region as well, probably people who were against him. Now, I just want you to mark this spot and go over to Revelation 9, and we'll see a little bit about this army that comes in from the east. And we won't spend much time, but I wish I could spend time in uh, Revelation 13, but you just look at that on your own and you'll see what that's like. We have a minute or two at the end of the lesson. Maybe we'll go back there. But in Revelation 9, it mentions this army from the east. Look at... Uh, Look at verse 13. And the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying, The sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who were bound at the river Euphrates to the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and the day and the month and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. Now the number of the army of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. Now evidently there's an army 
doesn't identify at this point, but a 200-member army, 200-million-member army. Now look over chapter 16 of Revelation, chapter 16. Talked about the drying up of the Euphrates. Now look at this. Look at verse 12. Revelation 16, 12. Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl. See, that's what that other chapter was talking about. On the river Euphrates. And its water was dried up. So that the way of the kings of the east. Look at this. Notice where they're coming from. The east might be prepared. And so here we see the drying up the river Euphrates and the armies are going to march in. I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon. That's the devil. Out of the mouth of the beast. That's the Antichrist. Out of the mouth of the false prophet. That's his religious leader. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the east and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. And so evidently there's going to be an invasion from the east. And we can't identify it other than the fact that it's probably an oriental army. And that's all we can really say clearly. Now go back to Daniel 11. And let's finish this up. Look what it says. When the news from the east and the north troubles him in verse 44, look what he does. Therefore he shall go out with great fury to annihilate many. Going to go out with great fury to destroy and annihilate many. And so we believe that he probably defeats the eastern army. And he shall plant, verse 45, the tents of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. That means he's going to set up a headquarters in Jerusalem between the Dead Sea and the Mediterranean Sea on Mount Zion. And we know about that from the book of the Revelation. So he sets up his headquarters there. Yet, look in the middle of verse 45, yet he shall come to his end and no one will help him. How does he come to his end? He comes to his end because the scripture says at that moment the Lord Jesus Christ who is the king of all kings comes from heaven and destroys the antichrist with the sword of the spirit that comes out of his mouth and with the word the antichrist is destroyed. And we have what's known as the battle of Armageddon which takes place between these two seas, the Dead Sea and the Mediterranean Sea. Now look at verse 1 of chapter 12. Verse 1, because it's all part of the same story. At that time, when that happened, when the Antichrist is destroyed, Michael shall stand up. There's the archangel. The great prince who stands watch over the children of the sons of your people and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that 
time. And so we see that there's going to be a great battle. Evidently, the demons of hell are going to be released. And Satan himself is going to put on his gear. And there's going to be a war, not only a war on earth that's taking place, but there's going to be a war in the heavenlies. And Michael has to come and he has to fight the battle. And it's going to produce all kinds of horror and bloodshed. We know that on earth, 2,000 of all Jews are going to be killed. We know that blood, the scripture says, is going to flow in the streets of Jerusalem as high as a horse's bridle. We know that a third of the sea is going to be destroyed, and it looks like the whole world is going to be destroyed. It looks like everything is going to be destroyed. And it says, and no flesh would be saved had God not intervened. And so at this moment, God intervenes and he sends his major angel, Michael, to protect his people. And that's what he does. And look what it says toward the end of verse 1. And at that time, your people shall be delivered. Michael wins the battle. He protects the people. And everyone who was found written in the book, probably the book of life, which is mentioned 12 times in the Bible. And then look what it says. And many of those who sleep, now the battle's over. The people have been delivered. Now remember, a lot of them died. We know that from the book of Revelation too. A lot of people died during this time. What about those people? What about the people who died before the Antichrist was defeated? What we find out about those. Look in verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. It's going to be a resurrection. A bodily resurrection. Some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Now, this is one of the ways we know that hell lasts for an eternity. Because the people who are raised, look what they get. Everlasting life. That's life that doesn't end. How about the lost people who are raised? Shame and what? Everlasting contempt. Doesn't end. Hell is, goes on forever. Those who are wise, and this is where we'll pick up next week, shall shine like the brightness of the firmament and those who turn many to righteousness meaning during that tribulation period that that when everything is going crazy and the antichrist is telling people to take the mark of the beast and all this kind of stuff and there are people there are christians there who say no don't do it don't do it turn to righteousness turn to righteousness those people get a, a reward those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament. The other one's shame, but this is brightness of the firmament. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. And they will reflect the glory of God on their countenance throughout all eternity. And so this is what we call Daniel's fourth vision regarding the events that will happen in the near future and then the events that will happen at the end of the age. <clears throat> Next week we're going to pick up at verse 4 where Daniel is told to shut up the words 
of the revelation and seal the book until the time of the end. And then it says, and many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. And that's what we'll talk about next week, the increase of knowledge and what that means in light of Daniel's revelation. Lord, I ask that you help us to be people who are wise, people who turn others to righteousness, Help us to realize that you have everything in control. You have angels around us protecting us. Often we wonder why doesn't another terrorist attack occur on our trains or during our Super Bowl or during our elections. And from a human standpoint, it, it doesn't even seem possible. We're just told to expect it. Lord, we believe if we could lift back that curtain, we would see that, that battle going on in the heavenlies and that you have your angels protecting over us. And so, Lord, this just makes us appreciate you even more that you, that you are protecting us and when Satan tries to harm us, you send your angels to protect those who are to be the heirs of salvation. We don't understand it all, Lord, but we appreciate you more because of passages like this. So give us a great day, Lord, and help us to be positive witnesses for Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.